You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, somebody else will be talking about Doctor Who so that we don't have to. I'm JR. I'm Simon. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because what's going to be on this podcast? Well, in a well, first of all, in a weird kind of time loop situation, here we are a week or two weeks later, and we are still stuck at these motorway services outside Gloucester with all these bloody hipsters running around. <laughs> it's all it's all blokes in pastel pink polo tops and funny beards. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was comic chaperones. Right, coming up on this podcast, the first thing we have got, <clears throat> and this is uh, more by luck than by design, but coming up on this podcast, we have a panel about season 22 of Doctor Who from the Starburst Film Festival. Which can, includes... can I just, there's a poodle, so that poodle's got an extraordinarily large tail. Up on the hillside, obviously, when when you go most way services, people take their dogs for a quick wee on the on the hillside, and that poodle's got a really strange tail. It's almost like a fox's tail on a poodle. Well, thanks for that, Simon. That's, right. that's thrilling radio. Maybe we ought to take a picture so that you can stick it on our Facebook page yeah. of the poodle with the extraordinarily weird tail. <clears throat> Coming up on this panel will be Philip Martin who wrote Vengeance on Varos and Mind Warp, and who was also there to talk about gangsters. Uh, Graham Harper. Oh, and there's another five or six minutes with Graham Harper at the end by himself. I tried to get Philip Martin and Eric Saywood too, but there was a lot of running around, and, well, the thing about these things is you make all these plans, but certain panels overrun and others don't, and people are running around, and you can never quite get everybody you want so there's only graham harper from this panel individually by himself at the end but the panel includes graham harper philip martin and eric sayward so just by coincidence because he was on the panel eric sayward will be being interviewed on the blue box podcast but that's only because we're putting the sound out from the panel but even so that's uh quite astonishing really isn't it it is honestly, honestly, listeners. There was nothing but air. Uh, Jr. was in the front row, and Eric Saywood was right. There was literally about four foot between them. It's just I never thought I'd see the day. So you know, I shook his hand twice today, and I've met him and shook his hand before, Simon. Have you? Yes. Oh yeah, I wasn't there to experience that. I don't know. So you see. Yeah. And actually, it's a shame I didn't get to talk to him because it's a bit of a joke on this podcast that. Eric Sayward is my arch nemesis. Mm. But the truth is, he ain't no Phil Collins. Yeah, he ain't no Phil Collins. And I would actually... And as much as I have ragged on about certain aspects of all those seasons, and it's become this joke, this inside, this sort of running joke about Eric Sayward, I would love to have actually sat down in 15 minutes and just got into some of the stuff in a way that doesn't often come up because you know there was oh, I would like to hear him talk about it in an un, un, he's not apologetic about it but it always feels like he's having to feels like he's got to compensate in some way and he's always very reticent as well mm. and it would have been nice to sit down somewhere quiet and just get him out of his shell a little bit more absolutely because I think there's plenty to say and I think there are questions that haven't really been asked that might shed a bit more light on that mm. one of the mm. things that comes up in the panel is he says that when he first got the script editorship, he was looking into getting... Well, he talked about this specifically about Philip Martin. He said, he, I want to... Philip Martin wants to do a Doctor Who. Let's have him do a Doctor Who. And John Nathan Turner says he's too established. 
Mm. And Eric Sayward yeah, mentioned... Why would he want to do a Doctor Who anyway? Yeah, yeah. and Eric Sayward says, you know, there's this thing about John Nathan Turner where he sort of seems to feel the need for seniority. So anybody who has any kind of career prior to coming to do Doctor Who is a threat to his authority. Mm. Well, I think a really interesting conversation with Eric Sayward would have been about going back to season 19 where Sayward comes in and does the visitation and Earthshock. Whatever you think about those two stories, they saved that season, mm. really, because without those two stories, I think that season would have been a... In spite of a couple of other good stories, I think that season would have been overall a dismal failure. And he was, at the time when he joined, the only choice for script editor. And he come in. He came in at a time when they just didn't have a full-time script editor for months beforehand. Most of the work on season 19 was done without a script editor and with John Nathan Turner, who everybody says is not story-based, mm, yeah. a story-based producer in charge. So... I think the conversation should be about Eric Sayward coming in as this person who John Nathan Turner obviously feels this authority over, and how did that work? And with hindsight, does Eric Sayward recognise that perhaps, even though he was the only apparent appointment that could have been made, that maybe that appointment wasn't made for the right reasons, but for all the wrong reasons? And however much he might have been able to make it work over the next two or three years, as his authority starts to grow and become something that competes with John Nathan Turner's authority. Mm. Is this the reason why it all starts to fall apart by season 23? I don't think that's a conversation that's really been had, but I think that would have been a really interesting conversation to have with him. Mm. And we didn't get to, but maybe one day we can. Maybe Mm. one day Mm. that'll be something that can happen. Mm. But anyway, we got... I don't know, that panel was about three quarters of an hour, I think. That's coming up now. It's, it's interesting to know that, that considering the amount of conversations and discussion and writing there has been about that era of Doctor Who, st- there's still more. There's still more to be said. Yeah. For sure, yeah. absolutely. Anyway, coming up after that panel, there's been another five or ten minutes with Graham Harper, who was again running around, so we could have had so much longer. And It was a bloody joy, actually. Graham Harper is Very the generous. loveliest man in television. Mm. Well, I say that, but then you bump into Toby Whitehouse and he's the loveliest man in television. Yeah, yeah. So there are lots of the loveliest man in televisions about, but Graham Harper was just an absolute delight. Yeah, and the um, there was an inside, uh, they, they uh, previewed a brand new episode of Inside Number 9. Which we can't talk about. We can't talk about, but Graham Harper directed, but all the way through it, he was giggling like a little boy. Had an absolute... Oh, he was absolutely peeing himself on that stage. Yeah. And I think afterwards he had to um, go and change. (laughs) (laughs) But when you see the episode, you... uh, Yeah. But we had a nice little chat, just five minutes or so, I think. Mm -hmm. And that'll be coming up after this. But first, obviously, the season 22 panel... With Eric Sayward, Philip Martin, and Graham Harper. There we are. Hello, welcome to the uh, panel where we're going to look at season 22 of Doctor Who. We've got three esteemed guests with us. We have legendary script editor Eric Sayward there, uh, legendary writer uh, Philip Martin there, who wrote Vengeance on Varos, of course, and legendary director Graham Harper, who did Revelations of Daleks as well. So, uh, thank you, welcome, gentlemen. Um, if we can start, Sean, we'll start with a, a trailer for season 22. If you can press play, that'd be great, thank you.
what the BBC called a, an hour programme, which was about probably in reality then about 55, 56 minutes. Because um, they always had, always had to reserve three or four minutes every hour for presentation for uh, the presentation department to advertise the next hundred programmes coming on. Um, and that's got shorter and shorter. So now we call an hour programme, it's actually 50 minutes, and the other 10 minutes is used for um, promoting. Um, I thought the 45 minute format was going to be good. I found it tough. I found it tough um, not to shoot the material, but tough. Um, it was a tough way of telling the story. You just needed another five or ten minutes each episode to make them more, to just get, uh, make them more understandable, I think. I found them very tight. But that's a retrospect at the time. I didn't think about it, I just got on with it. Now I think it's um, uh, quite a tough format. And I think the current series, since the new series, they were 45 minute episodes most of the time. Um, I did, I found it tough, tough to get that story over. Okay. So same to Philip. Yeah, well, as I said, I got the, the, the full 30 minutes. And of course, when it goes, I'd lost, I had to cut it, cut it back, and often cutting helps. But sometimes, you know, I agree with, with Graham, but it's a sort of in-between length. It's not a 30 minute theatre short story length. And it's not a novella length. It's in this sort of no man's land. And like you, I got on with it and didn't think too much about it. And I was, I'd already had stuff that I could adapt to bring it down to. But it's, um, yeah, you, you know, the, to actually get the, let the story breathe, you often need this extra time. So I mean, I, I would be against 45 minutes and all. So, although the 50 minutes now is because when the BBC flog programmes aboard, they can flog the 50 minutes and the, the buyers can fit in commercials on that way. So it, yeah. it's more or less 50 minutes now, anyway. But no, I think a bit more would be nice. Okay. Eric, same to you. Um, well, I, the 45 minute thing was, was um, sent down from upstairs where John and I had no say in it. Um, when I first heard, I thought this is, this is, this is uh, good because you tell a 45 minute tale in a different way to you tell. 25 minute tale. 25 minutes is very tight, and you're, you, 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 just, you set the thing up, you have a bit of plot development, you have a cliffhanger, and that makes it very formulaic. With a 45 minute episode, I think you can be more gentle, you tell the story in a different way, um, you, develop, you can have more space to develop characters. So, unlike Greg, where I just didn't, and, and, and Philip don't just get down on a piece of paper and give it to them to do the hard work. I was able to sit back in the luxury and think, I'm enjoying doing this whilst he was doing the hard grind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and also it, it, at the start of season 22, it returned to a Saturday night, well, a sa early Saturday evening. Um, and so my question is, is that a natural home for Doctor Who, do you think? Um, certainly that early in the evening. And how much is Doctor Who a children's programme or an adult's programme? Or does it come to two? Um, going out uh, as early as it did, I think it did create problems because we, that's John and I, had deliberately decided to, to push it into a slightly more adult format. Um, and going out whenever it was, six o'clock, half past six, was, was really too early. We got, we got complaints about that. That we were, what we thought we were doing, taking our family program and putting it out with more obvious violence. Um, as I think I said earlier, that you've got to change what to push forward, otherwise it just remains the same. I, I never looked at it as a children's program because we came out of series and serials, which is where all the uh, adult drama came from. No one ever came to me and said, you know, this vocabulary is a bit sticky or, um, you know, came this isn't simplified enough, I've got to skin it or something. It, uh, none of that was ever said. It was just at the end of it all. It would, I, I think upstairs never really watched the programme, so they, they would just stick it out and they were filling a gap. And they had overlooked the fact that we, we were pushing it on a bit. And um, well, the rest is history, as I say. Thanks, yeah, um, Venus on Veros is quite a tough watch, it really should have been after the watershed almost, because it, it created um, an atmosphere of violence which got into the heads of the, of 
the audience, really. So in actual fact, it became, to them, more violent than it actually was. And I often quote a letter that somebody wrote to the Radio Times after it had been shown, saying, um, I sat down to watch Doctor Who with my children, and I was shocked, appalled, appalled and shocked, <laughs> uh, because I've never seen anything like it. It reminded me of the worst excesses of the Second World War. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's a bit much, but I know what you mean, really. You know, that, that I think it was in the wrong slot. And um, that was just the way it was. Um, children and adults, really. I think, I think kids should be able to watch it at a certain age, a certain sophistication. Um, and I think what happened at the end when um, Sylvester McCoy took over, that it became centred more towards the children's end and lost the adults, and I think the programme suffered very badly from it. Um, I think, for me, Doctor Who is Saturdays, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Saturdays. So you, you have a Saturday evenings, a variety uh, evening, so you see have probably a quiz. Um, Doctor Who would come on 7, 7.30 maybe. It's a family show. I think it started off, uh, if I remember right, it started off as a children's programme, educational programme, through travelling through space and whatever, and time going backwards and forwards in history. Um, but something suitable for the whole family to watch together. And actually, I think the BBC didn't know what they had until they got it, and it was a huge success. And it obviously was a family programme. Um, quite scary, and maybe um, big sofas were necessary so you can hide behind them. Uh, and you showed that, I, don't, I can't remember the time it used to go up, but you showed that at 7, 7.30. That, that was followed by a, a wonderful variety show, and maybe a great drama, um, and then a film at the end of the evening. But there, it was definitely Saturday night, it was a great, great family viewing show uh, period, and Doctor Who was part of that. It then went on to being on all sorts of days, and so it kept, at one point it kept changing. Um, I think the dates changed quite a lot in this series, if I remember rightly. So the, at one point, you didn't know if it was on a Thursday one week and a Friday the next, or it, it seemed to lose its way just to suit the um, uh, schedule and etc. Uh, and that was silly. That you didn't do that to Doctor Who because it was too important. Uh, or to any programme, but Doctor Who was watched and liked by a lot of people. Um, but once it then became regulated, especially now where it goes up regularly on a Saturday night, everybody knows it's part of a fantastic variety package, I think it's one again, that's why. Thank you. Um, so when you say about the change in the nights, I think um, they killed the series Dickensian that was on at the start of this year, because you never knew when that was going to be on either. That was shocking. Yeah, and uh, it was a fantastic series, but yeah, I think the same thing happened there. Um, Sean, can you put on the Vengeance on Varos trailer, please? <laughs> this one might be a bit quiet.
Philip, then, first question. How did you come to be involved with Doctor Who or with Vengeance on Varos in particular? Well, I, I hadn't watched the programme for quite some time. My daughter, then about seven or eight, I think, began to watch it when it was on in the week. And um, I, she, she became a bit scared and said, well, you watch it with me, so I watched it. And about three programmes later, I woke up one morning, and I thought to myself, where is the media going to be in, say, 300 years' time? What are they going to be dealing with? And from that little germ, I developed the idea of a prison planet that had sort of evolved from the original, whereas the, the, the prisoners and the officers had gone. But the structure of the prison was still in the society. There was an elite of officers, and the general population were just exploited um, by them, and lived in pretty, pretty dire straits, but they were entertained like the, Bre the Breton Circus's idea that they were given increasing violence that was um, beamed into their homes and they became addicted to it really and there was a punishment over where people suffered you know, dreadful things for the entertainment world like gladiators in the old arena. And I began to develop I mean, so I quite liked it and I thought well what do I do with this? Um, you know, there's no <laughs> can I do with it? So I sent it down to Eric in London and uh, we had a meeting. I should explain about blowing my own trumpet that I had a different reputation because I had played at the National Theatre, I had played for the days, um, I you know, had gangsters which had been well received and everything. And I didn't have any science fiction background really. So anyway, I sent it down to Eric and we met and we had a, a, a chat about the idea. He was called to name at that time. And during the course of our conversation, Eric said a very important thing to me. He said, you know, you have to create a complete world. You can't, you know, it's the detail, you know, the devil is in the detail. You have to have in your own mind, you have to become like God, let you create a world, and that's the world of your story. And I thought this was, um, this was very interesting and, and what needed to be done. Because, as I say, I hadn't written, I, I sort of dipped my toe into the science fiction water and played with the other But I didn't actually write it, certainly not for an established series. So I began to write it. Um, you don't want me going on about this, do you? No, no. But it's, it's, it's sort of a bit convoluted. But it, um, so I went back and I began to think about it again. And I sent it into Eric, and he said, This is coming along, it's coming along. And we reached the point that John Nathan Turner became very, very antsy about it because he said, Why does Philip Mullen want to write for Doctor Who? You know, it's not a political show, you know what he's like. And uh, they said, And Eric said, Well, I think you know, he wants to write for it, and it's a gem, I'm putting words in your mouth. But um, anyway, well, I'm just looking at it from my end. And then I got back. And John seemed to be very anti the, the idea completely. And then he did something which was really, I think, designed to put me off for good because he said, well, tell him if he does um, a scene breakdown, uh, we'll certainly look at it properly. Now, this is an insult to an established writer because a scene breakdown means you, you go through the whole script, not writing the dialogue, but saying, you know, we open on the prison planet and we go that, then we go into the TARDIS, and from the TARDIS we go to that, and there's a man being tortured, and then the TARDIS appears. So it's a series of scenes and it takes you away the way through. And by this time I'd reached a point where I thought, well, I'm going to go through with this, you know, and he's batted the ball back to me, so I'm going to bat it back to him. So I wrote a screen breakdown and sent it in. And then I believe this is right, that, that John said, well, all right. But tell him not to make it political. Vengeance on Varos is the most political show that I've ever Just one little digression. There's, there's a line in it called um, uh, I want to hear you scream until I go deaf with pleasure, which was voted the most capitalist line in Doctor Who um, of course, and the, the other honour you had in connection with Vegas on Virus was a complaint letter from Mary Whitehouse about civil. About civil, yes. Yes, I mean, I, I used to call it my badge of honour to be, uh, to be uh, on her hit list, I thought it was, was great. Um, question for Eric uh, on the back of um, that. 
How much input did you get from John Nathan Turner on when scripts were being developed? Very little. He wasn't very interested in, in scripts. If he thought they were interested. No, he, he, he wasn't. I, I think he, part of the reason why he picked up on Philip was uh, uh, because he was very established in his own, his own right, his own way, his own world almost. Um, and this, I think, always unnerved John. John liked to work with people who were very new to the profession and were, were still learning and were, and were keen to please. He liked that very much. But when a war horse like this comes along, he sees trouble. We, we, it's only in his own head because uh, Philip was conscientious, worked hard, did everything he was asked to do. Um, and it was, a, it was a foolish. We also risked putting a, a, an established, a good writer from, from writing for the show. It was, it was very hard to find people who could do it well. And uh, I was appalled that uh, Philip was being discouraged in this way. It, it wasn't fair, and it wasn't certainly doing Blue any, uh, any favours. Uh, watching the DVD this week, in preparation for this, I think I forget who said it now, I'm not sure who's best to answer this out to the two of you, uh, but were there more humorous moments that had to be cut uh, in the editing process in Benjamin's on Barros? No, it wasn't really, it wasn't really that, sorry, it wasn't really that sort of show, really. It was just, I wanted, almost like a horror film, really. I wanted to, um, it just had to be, because the currency that they were using was violence. You know? And there, there were a few lighter moments in it, but basically there wasn't. I mean, a lot of people picked up on it, you know. I remember I came in one night, and I switched on the news night, and Jeremy Paxman was playing the scene of the doctor of the, um, where the governor gets, basically the difference of the governor is that there's a vote that goes into people's homes. And if the governor, the governor puts his uh, policy like, should we raise the, the, the price of Zyton 7, which is the one asset, and the population vote, if the population is in favor, the governor gets a shower of uh, life enhancing um, protons or atoms, so he feels, um, you know, exhilarated and ready to carry on with increased energy. If the, go, if the vote goes against him, it's the other way, and there's a negative thing which, which debilitates him, and they can only stand about four of these negative votes in a row. So, but I came in, and um, there was Martin Jarvis on my screen, coming back, and, and the, the stuff's coming down, and he's going, ah, 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 and Paxman's killing himself laughing, saying, I think we should do that with our more of our politicians. <laughs> 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 okay, well, so, sorry, what was the original question? I keep that it. Um, what was the original question? It was, um, oh, the humorous bit. The humorous bit. No, the, 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 not in that one. No, in, in um, Mind Warp, in um, Trial of Time, there were, there were more things than that, but it just wasn't that sort of show, and, uh, and I, I don't think there was room for it, really. Um, Maybe just one last question about Varus before we move on to Revelation of the Daleks. Um, something else I picked up on on the, the DVD was a comment that the two watchers in it were originally going to be silent. Is that correct? No. no oh, okay. They, no, they were always they were always going to be the commentators because at that time I was very much into the fourth wall <coughs> with, with gangsters and broken up the, the convention of watching television and I wanted to break it up. Um, so that, that there was a commentary going on through that. So we were viewers watching viewers watching a show. You know what I, mean? yeah. I wanted to break up the, the standard pretense that we're actually looking at reality, really. And I was very, very much into that at that time. And it spilled over from the gangster's experience into um, the Doctor Who writing at that time. And also, you know, just, just to add to this, it was a time of social violence that was going on. There was the minor minor strike. There were riots going on. There, were, there was you know, a lot of upheaval, in a, in a way, at that time. It was the you know, the zeitgeist of the time was that, that he was society in you know in, in turmoil almost. And in a way, some of that also it was written just after 1984, Orwell's 1984, when you were actually looking at Big Brother and um, doing that. So. To get back to this, there wasn't much room for humour in that particular idea. Uh, can we have the uh, Revelation of the Daleks track, please?
should have said, if you've not seen it, there are a few spoilers in that one. <laughs> 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 a bit like... Um, uh, Graham, how did you come to direct uh, Revelation of the Daleks? Because he offered it. <laughs> <laughs> Eric and John Nathan Turner offered it to me. I, I know that they... Um, uh, I can't remember now, but I know that as soon as I finished the first one, John asked me if I'd come back and do another one. Yes, please. But I got something else, um, and dates clashed, if I remember rightly, and then eventually this one. I think that's what happened. Anyway, this was offered to me, this episode, not episode, this story. Um, and I really wanted to do it. I found it really, really interesting and creepy. Um, and there was, there are, I, I, when I got it, I discussed with um, John Nathan Turner, I'm sure with Eric at meetings, um, the comedy element, talking about comedy, the, the, it definitely needed um, a, a, a dark comedy element. Uh, in, I've got to remember their names now. Milt Tilt. The two, Lauren Hardy, as I call them now. I knew we had to have Lauren Hardy kind of figures and these two creepy security guys or whatever. Um, just to offset what was a really dark story. Um, and they agreed, and, and we went down that road. So they, there are some nice, kind of brilliant, dark comedy moments. Um, the story is relentlessly grim, I think, uh, and, and for a director, fun to do. I, I really enjoyed the casting. I really enjoyed what all the actors offered. Um, Doctor Who down to, um, it wasn't down, but everybody in that uh, was wonderful. The only person I was unsure of was Tassin Beaker. Um, but with careful editing, she became terrific. It was a, that's a lousy thing for me to say. It sounds like she was awful. I think we weren't quite right in our casting there. But at the same time, she's fabulous in it. So it was just the way we had to cut some of the materials to make it um, more palatable, I suppose is the word. Um, but I did, I found the story unusual, interesting. Alexi Sale. There's the comedy. That was pure fun. And I remember when we, uh, I'm sure I'm digressing, going off on a No, you're fine. But I remember the very first rehearsal that John Nathan Turner came to. Alexi Sale, who played um, the DJ in space, um, didn't give anything. So when he played, he just and did it in this strange Liverpool accent. Well, that wasn't strange, but he did, it was strange to hear him not performing um, in Liverpool in accent. Um, and at the end of the run-through in a rehearsal room somewhere, um, John Nathan Turner came up to me and said, it's smashing ground, but I'm really, really worried about Alexis. So, is that what he's doing? And I said, no, no, no. I'm, I, you know what he does. He, he, it would be wonderful. He said, but I want to see it. I'll, if we don't get what we want on the day, we're never going to have the time to change it. So I, I, I really beg of you. And I said, I, I, I just... Okay, I don't think he's going to do it, but would you like to come back tomorrow and I'll talk to him about it? So I had a conversation with Alexis Sell, who was really good. I'm saving Graham. I don't want to show anybody what I'm going to do. It will happen on the day. You will love it. I'm absolutely certain. I know exactly what we're doing. And I said, well, the producer is really, really unsure, and I think we have to show him. And I was really worried about saying it to him because I thought he would walk off the show. Um, but he said, okay, I'll do it once. On the Friday, this was a Thursday we were talking about. So John came back the next day and saw um, uh, an effort of what Alexi Sale was going to offer. He didn't. He didn't show him. He showed something. He did not show him what he really was going to do with it. Um, and John, I know, went into the studio really concerned. And then he turned in a fantastic performance, um, which I thought was really cheeky of him to do. But that's a lot of actors did it in those days. Now they don't have time. Saving it for the take. You're not going to see what they're going to do until they actually have the red light. So that was my experience of um, nerves too. But watching it this week, it, uh, I mean, as you said, it struck me how excellent the cast are in it. How much say did you have in the casting? Um, oh, a lot. Um, but it was collaborative. I, uh, I think I'd been directing by Barton for three years by then when I did this uh, blog, um, and I. I had learned quite a lot of lessons about collaborating with actors, seeing what they offer, not telling them what to do. Don't tell them what you imagine. You discuss it with them, or having seen in a rehearsal what they're offering, you then manoeuvre the whole project if you want to with their character. 
uh, into a different way by discussing it with them and, and developing the character uh, or the, the way you want it to go. Just by being really straight and honest. Don't play games. Um, but don't go in there saying, now when you come in and, and describe exactly how you want them to play the scene. That was uh, a really silly way of doing it. Uh, and with this caliber of um, artist, you, there's no way I was going to tell them at all anything about how they are, wanted them to do it until I'd seen what they wanted to bring to the table. So it was collaborative all the way through, and I do that to this day. Um, you mentioned before how grim the story is, and I mean, there's a lot of death in it, but you wanted to go grimmer, I believe, in some ways, uh, with Joe Bell's um, death, where he's stabbed with a syringe. Uh, I can't remember, no, I, okay. I, but, I, but, but I have to say, when I started directing, um, I was eager and I really wanted to show what I could do. So I, when, when we got to action, I really wanted to go as far as we could go. Um, John, bless him, John Nathan Turner made sure I didn't have that uh, privilege. Um, and uh, I was pulled back a lot. Um, gradually, throughout my career, I really have understood, how to, I think, how to do violence. I don't want to show violence just for the sake of it. Um, there has to be a purpose to it, and you have to let the audience see something you actually haven't shown them. Let them imagine that. Um, leave something for the audience to create for themselves. Um, so I've got less and less violent over the years, but still I know I, I, it's funny, I don't like violence. I don't want to be hit by anybody, and I certainly won't hit anyone. But I actually enjoy sh shooting and creating violent scenes, and I have no idea why that is, because, uh, so anyway, uh, yes, it's possible, but I can't remember, unless you prop me up, I actually can't remember what I, I might have had. I think you wanted to see, well, according to what I saw on the DVD, you wanted to see the liquid in a syringe going oh, down. Oh, yes, no, I, would, I would do that, um, and uh, thank God for casualty, because I, I, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you see, casualty is really violent, but violent, not violent, horrific in some cases, but a lot of people can do that. I, I could make it, but I can't actually watch Casualty or Holby, but I can actually shoot those scenes without having any worries. It's weird. Um, and one last question about Revelation of the Daleks. I'm not sure who's best to answer this one. Um, there is the story about um, there was a particularly respected thespian who might have been cast in the role of the mutant, who you may have <laughs> you may have glimpsed for a second wandering through the snow at the start of the trailer. Who's is that true? Yes, that's <laughs> true. It is. Um, <laughs> when I started, John said, and I'll tell you what I've heard. He said, John Nathan Turner. I've heard Sir Lawrence Olivier wants, for the, to have street cred with his grandchildren, he wants to do a part in Doctor Who and why has nobody ever asked him? And because he was very old, he was 80 at this stage, um, we both felt that there wasn't going to be, perhaps it was wrong to offer anything big. Um, and also he was a bit too old for any of it at all. But John thought he'd be fantastic as the <laughs> And I said, if you can get him to do the music, that would be stunning. <laughs> and he did. He went to the agent, and the agent said, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was told this week as well that apparently he also wanted to do Cor Coronation Street around the same time. Oh, did he? And, and he was offered a trap. So there we are. Um, uh, Eric, a question for you now to go back. Looking at the season 22 in general, it's a real. There are a lot of old foes at the back, and even old friends as well, companions. And there are some fantastic new characters like Syl, um, for example. Um, did you have a. yourself have a preference for old existing characters or new characters? Well, I wanted. Um, <coughs> trying to reshape the program, um, you leave that behind. I mean, it was done, it was worth it for its take. But now it's time to move on. But there was a relationship John had with um, a well-known fan, and I, I rather think now, it's like he was feeding a lot of uh, the stuff that was coming through. You know, we had some ridiculous things like We even had uh, somebody kicking out kicking a, a monster coming out of the sea. It was, it was bizarre. But no, I, I, would, I wanted to go on. I wanted to move forward. Uh, what's your proudest moment from season 22? 
apart from Philip's script, which was fabulous. Uh, I enjoyed very much writing uh, Revelation of the Daleks. I felt like I'd, I'd made a, a move in, in again in the direction I wanted to, the show to go. And, um, and it was done very well. I know it was sitting up here saying that. It was wonderful. Graham is wonderful, but Graham did a very good job on the show. And it, it came together as uh, so often, or so rarely does it um, come together where a script never quite finds the right director. The, the, the casting is not always the best it could be. But I felt on Revelation that all that came together. It, and I was, it was great. I thought it was, it was really, really good. Um, I've, I've power watched the season this week because I was away on holiday the other week, so I didn't. I had to power watch it this week, and I really enjoyed it. But just a question to each of you: how, Looking back on the material now, how do you feel it, it stands up? Um, well, I think Barrels um, stands up very well. Um, I think that um, I think Barrels stands up very well because it's about something. It's about the political process. It's about exploitation of resources. It's about human cruelty and you know, the kick that humans get out of it. And, um, but I, I think, looking back, I enjoyed parts of Minor Warp, and, and you ask about what's the, the memory of it. I think the memory I take was when, when we met for the original discussion with Eric and John and the other writers, unfortunately Bob Holmes who died before he could do his work on it, um, John took me aside and said, I want you to keep this to yourself, but I want Perry <laughs> um, but you mustn't tell anybody. There were a lot of us who did push that. So I said, well, okay, John, all right, okay. So I went around with meeting parties and things, and I think, how am I going to kill her? I think I've got a lot of I had one revelation, I got one morning, I thought, a fighting funeral. And then I, then I changed that. But anyway, as it turned out, her demise occurred when her brain was transplanted from an alien kid, Sewell's boss, into her skull. And the moment where she sits up with all her hair shaved off and talks in this alien voice, coming to terms with the body, I like this body, I like the fact, I like it's warm, it's... And I think that was one of the most chilling moments in it, really, for me, that I remember when, when I think about it. But, um, Years later, I was doing a commentary and Nicola was there and I told the story to her and she just said, oh, I knew, she said, I knew. it was all my angst about it was just in vain. Um, I think what was awful about Doctor Who in those days was um, the archaic way we had to make it. Um, it should have been single camera even in those days uh, and uh, it would have stood up better to Star Wars or Raiders or whatever. Um, it was being made at a t on a very low budget at a time and competing with um, projects that had massive budgets to do fantastic effects, etc. And we struggled. But we struggled brilliantly because uh, some of the effects were absolutely brilliantly conceived and, and got uh, and, uh, and helped the show. I think Eric and others and, <laughs> and this man but I think Eric, in this story, uh, wrote a really good story that was really cleverly written. At the time, I thought it was really confusing, but that's my brain. Um, when you compare it to now, what would have been fantastic is to do that now with the technology that we have now, uh, because it would have been absolutely, it will be brilliant. But it was brilliant because it's a, a great story. It isn't as complex as I made out. Um, that was just my brain, uh, and I think it's a really good story that everyone can uh, watch easily and will stand the test of time. Right. Anyone here who has Stephen Moffat's telephone number, <laughs> <laughs> please ring him and say Graham Harper wants to direct a remake of Revelation. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are we are available. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> well, it it struck me watching it this week um, how very mature and intelligent the season is uh, in general actually and it's a very challenging subject and a concept in the course of it so I think that's absolutely brilliant. Can we have a round of applause for season 22? <laughs> okay.
We've got five minutes for questions, if anybody has any questions. Anybody? You, sir. Uh, yeah. The interesting thing about Revelation is that it's almost like a prototype Doctor Light episode because the Doctor and Perry don't appear in it that much. Was that something, uh, Eric, when you wrote it that you did consciously or was it only afterwards when you sat back and looked at it that went, oh, they're not actually in it that much? Um, no, I didn't do it consciously. I, I, what I did was fashion the story uh, in my own mind as to what I wanted, how I wanted it, and the characters I then wanted. And um, of course, the Doctor is in it and he's, he's making his way to um, where Davos is. And um, he, he, did, he did come out of it Dr. Light, but it was extraordinary at the time. No one complained. Don Johnson didn't say anything. Uh, Colin Baker didn't say anything um, that I'm aware of. Um, so, yes, it, was, it wasn't deliberate to exclude Colin Baker. There was no, no uh, evilness afoot. It just the way it turned out. And I suppose because I was also a script editor, I could get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Do you think if the BBC had had a more hands-on approach to telling you what kind of a Doctor Who they wanted, not that you would have come up with something better or worse, but the, the thing that you would have come up with might have been good in a different way? Or do you think if they'd have had a more hands-on approach, that might have uh, instead had a negative effect? Um, well, to all of well, you, but I, I suppose yeah. mostly to you, Eric. Yeah, well, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I'll just put it my two pens. Um, I think it would have been disastrous because the people who are in charge, the management and the higher echelons of the BBC are creative people and they certainly hate artists. What, why so many different things came out at that time was is that the artists were trusted. You, know, you were trusted. You, it was your job because you were unusual talent that we were buying and why should we not accept your unusual, the, the fruits of your unusual talent? So my answer to you is that it would have been disastrous. Yes, I'd, I'd go with that. But, uh, as Philip says, that uh, they are not programme makers. They're not writers or actors. They, they probably contribute that. They're great managers, I suppose, and have huge qualifications when it comes to business studies. But very little when it comes to how to make a programme. With a follow-up then, does it irritate you that Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes were able to get away with it and you got punished for it. It doesn't irritate me. It's different time, different place. And, and Hinchcliffe and uh, Robert Holmes, <coughs> excuse me, Robert Holmes um, got away with it because it was good. And we, what I was certainly trying to do was to, was to make it different, make it more adult, and hopefully make it as good as well. I mean, it's great work to watch with them today. And, uh, we, I don't know, there was all sorts of stories as to why we were, we were closed down. But I don't think any of it was really truth or anything they came to. We had low audience figures, we didn't have low audience figures. Apart from all the letters that went to Philip Ventures from Barlow, I wasn't aware of much criticism flying around, either from upstairs or from the general public. Okay, well, I think we're, we're out of time, uh, folks. Can we have a, a massive round of applause? <laughs> this week, may I recommend that you all do the same, <laughs> it's not worth it, uh, particularly with the commentaries as well. I like the one where the two doctors' commentaries best, where Jacqueline Pierce has no idea what's going on all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, that's it, thank you very much for coming along and listening. Um, Graham will be on later for, with the Inside Number 9 stuff, Philip will be on later with the Gangsters stuff. And I think, are you all outside signing stuff at some point? I don't know. Totally. Probably. Probably. Okay, Probably. maybe, we'll find out. There we are. Thanks again. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm here now with Graham Harper, um, director of, uh, I think it's the opening episode of series three of Inside Number Nine, which we've just watched and we can't really talk about. Nope. But, okay, I'll come back to that and ask you briefly about that later. 
But the first thing I'm going to say is, when it comes to, uh, for example, let's say a channel for soap opera that needs a disaster where you'd not know in the audience whether anybody's going to live or die, who's the director Hollyoaks comes to for their big train crash episode? Me. (laughs) And why do you think that is? Um, I think it's because they're daft. Um, The other is, I, I have done a lot of action adventure in a lot of different kinds of programmes, including Doctor Who and uh, Coronation Street. And once I did Coronation Street, in which I was invited to do the tram crash episode for their 50th anniversary, I think that's where that came from. In fact, I know it is. Well, obviously, that was Phil Collinson as well, so he knew what you were capable of. Yeah, he he asked me when he went to Coronation Street after Doctor Who, he asked me... Uh, amongst a whole band of effects people uh, to come and do their tram crash. But someone who was on the show on Coronation Street moved, would you believe, to Hollyoaks. And it was that person who asked whether I would, and suggested to them that if you wanted to get somebody for your big crash, try Graham Harper. So that's how that happened. Well, and having seen both of them, I think they both work. Perfectly fine. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> but that's not due to me, that's due to the girls. <laughs> honest, Gov, honest. <laughs> very briefly, and on inside number nine then, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to anybody, knowing that it's um, Shearsmith and uh, Pemberton, that there's a comedy element. Did you find that that was a bit of a switch? Um, I've done quite a bit of comedy in sitcoms in my life. Oh, um, well, you did. Rick Mail, New I Statesman. Did, uh, yeah. New Statesman, which was a wonderful experience, and that was a wonderful way into doing comedy. And, and, and because I did that um, out, I then got offered quite a few sitcoms that I really, um, not all of them did I want to do. Uh, and the reason being um, that most of the producers and, uh, well, not the artists, but most of the producers I worked with in comedies did laugh. They would come very seriously and and, and assess the comedy very seriously. Wow. They were still funny, and yeah, they yeah. still and I uh, they didn't deter me from uh, it deterred me from wanting to do comedy because um, I want to produce to laugh, and if he's not laughing, I think there's something wrong, um, uh, and it's part of your makeup to be a producer in comedy. But Adam Tandy and of course the boys who wrote yeah. it uh, are gigglers. Um, Adam is absolutely the support you need as a director in comedy um, because he, and if it's not funny, he would tell you. Um, so that was a hugely brilliant experience for me because I had two gigglers um, in the artist and I've also got a giggler in the producer. Um, it was unusual that we actually finished the programme because it was that silly for but me. Do, and do you also find that there's a connection between doing action and doing comedy because a lot of the time it's all about the timing. I should, I should I've imagine. never thought of it that way and the, the answer to that is you're right. Um, they're both, uh, they both need quite a, a lot of care and technique. I'm not sure I've, that comes easy to me. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, oh no, but, I think uh, it's but obvious it, that it does. Uh, yes, and help. I mean, I don't think of it all on my own but um, yeah. uh, it's all collaborative and as long as you're all going in the same direction, or you are prepared to compromise and back off because somebody else has got a better idea. Don't don't be. Uh, you, you need to. You need to be collaborative, especially when you're not the comic. The comics are them, uh, the, yeah, the two yeah, artists, yeah. and so you have to collaborate and want to uh, uh, to get the best out of it. And when you do that, you can also all agree that that doesn't work, and we'll try something else. I can't let you go, and we have to be brief because you're just about to go off and catch a train home or whatever, but I can't let you go without asking a question about Doctor Who. You've worked across several decades of Doctor Who in one capacity or another, and for a man who looks so young and sprightly, that's astonishing. That's very nice of you to say so. I'm an old git. Well, I was only going to really ask, Doctor Who has changed so much over the years. Given that you've worked on enough of it to sort of have an experience of a big body of it, do you sort of see the threads that tie it together, or do you think of it in its various different incarnations as a different programme? Um, that's a good one. Uh, I stumped I, you at the end. Well, you, in, in style, it's different. All of them changed because um, they were all multi-camera studios from the 60s to the 80s, so it was multi-camera studio plus film. So that was quite an odd combination, but what we were all used to in those days. 
now it's all single camera as if you're like all dramas like um, film, and it's made like a film and the budget for it is fantastic well I don't know about this uh, the, the current series but it was when I did it the budget was stunning so you could afford to do not all the effects and stunts that you wanted but most a good three quarters of them so that's that's the massive difference. But watching some archaic episodes today, God, they did stand up. They did work. If you, if you compare them to today, of course, they, they look... Um, they look uh, different, but they feel but, the same. But at the time, you still felt, because the stories were so good and the, and the artists played it to the hilt uh, and played it their hearts out to you, you were drawn in uh, and you forgave... Bits of scenery that moved or, or dodgy effects or whatever you forgave because the truth of what the artists were playing um, shone through so that's that's the secret good storytelling and good performances brilliant graham harper lovely bloke and thank you for taking the time even though you're supposed to be on a train somewhere <laughs> or something thanks very much thank you very much and back to JR, and that was Graham Harper, and prior to that you had Eric Sayward, Philip Martin and Graham Harper on the Season 22 panel from the Starburst Film Festival from the Saturday. That was a really, actually a really nice day, the Saturday. Mm. It was mm. a real nice mix of stuff. Season 22 was covered, Phil Martin came and talked about the recovery of other stuff. You had Phil Collinson and Toby Whithouse and Bob Baker. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, um. Katie Manning was there, of course. Yeah. So you actually had a nice mixture of the old and the new. And then Carolyn Monroe was there talking about uh, Golden Voyager Sinbad. Yeah. And then the uh, the Harryhausen um, collection yeah. team were yeah. there showing a few of the puppets and talking about those. Um, and that's I not didn't to mention I... the stuff on the Friday and the Sunday that we had to miss because we could only be here for the day. Yeah. I had a nice moment with the Harryhausen people because um, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I had a friend who, whose father worked on the films back in the day and worked on Clash of the Titans. And um, one day I went back to his house. He said, here, I'll have a look at this. And he opened up this cabinet and passed, passed me this thing. And it was the, uh, the little statue, like the chess piece of Perseus from Clash of the Titans. And I was there holding it in my hand, and you know that had been hand sculpted by Ray Harryhausen. So I've lost contact with that friend, and uh, I thought, as a, as a mix of maybe be able to get back hold of him again, and also helping them. And I, I even went through my mind, and thought, oh god, I wonder where he's supposed to have it or not. But when I went and speak, spoke to them, they've had them all back. So at some point, it's been returned to them. So they've got the they've got everything. You know, it's it's like the Lucasfilm archives. They've got everything. Certainly, as far as Clash of the Titans is concerned. Do they keep these, like, in a little museum somewhere then, or are they just, like, held privately and come out for events like this? I think, well, a bit of both. Yeah, because... Oh, oh, I see what you mean, what, a viewable museum? Yeah. No, no, as far as I'm aware, it's... Just it's, come out for It's like a vault, yeah. Yeah. That's a shame, because actually, I don't know, depends where it is, I suppose, but a little Ray Harryhausen museum... I suppose you wouldn't get a huge amount of trade, but it'd be a fascinating thing for some people to be able to go and see. Maybe it'd be the kind of thing you could open for three months in the summer every year or something. Mm, mm. But anyway, yeah, we had a great time. And now we are going to finally turn this recording off, turn the engine of the car back on and get the hell away from the motorway services from the Wicker Man. <laughs> um, I think next week might be the week we talk about season 17. But as always with these things, the best laid plans of mice and JR aft gang adley so uh chances are we probably won't be talking about 17 but until then i was jr i was simon and we will speak again soon